Welcome to Rebecca Sounds Reveille. What an exciting show do I have for you today because with me, I have guest Joe Owls. And he is an author, animator, draftsman, illustrator, set designer, art director, production designer, and director. You may know him with 18 credits to his name. He's most notably known him for his work on Close Encounters of the Third Time, Jaws 3D, along with Escape from New York, and much more. His work is absolutely very well known. He's an incredible man with a lot to tell. He's had two, yes, two major awards, two, yes, two major award nominations, one of his awards was an Oscar in 1978 for Best Art Direction Set Decoration for his movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Welcome to the show, Joe Owls. Okay, how are you? I am so excited for you to be here because what an incredible man you are with what incredible talent that you have given and it has been just memory etched into the minds of millions with the work that you have done. I am so excited for you to be here. That's how I'm doing today. Well, that's good. Uh, well, where, where do we start? Um, I, I, you mentioned the books, uh, I mean, the movies and, and, and of course, uh, Jaws. And then there's a book out called uh, Designing yes. Jaws, Joe Al's Designing Joe Jaws. Al's Yes, I want to not and, forget and, that either. Yeah, and anyway, I could start with that, and 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 anybody that's interested in the, the movie, it, it's a good, uh, it's good explanation on how a movie develops, not how it's directed or acted, but how you you start from sketches and storyboards, and how you get technical people and you build a shark and so forth. So to start off with, and that's available on joealvesmovieart.com along Perfect. with the storyboards. But um, if we want to go way back, uh, Jaws obviously w was a big one, and I'll talk about that later. But um, if, um, if we want to start at the beginning, uh, I would say, uh, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I was always interested in in art, I always drew from the time I was, uh, oh, fourth grade, I drew all the, all the dwarfs, <clears throat> and then the teacher put them up on the wall, you know, the, the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Yes. But, uh, you know, but Rebecca, the, the thing that really started, because an interesting thing happened to me this week. Uh, I got a call, uh, an email from the Art Directors Guild. And every year, the last 25 years, they've had a, an award show uh, where they um, they give out for best production design of a movie, best art direction of a television, best illustration, yes. best, et cetera. Uh, but they also put out uh, every one a year uh, a Lifetime Achievement Award for your work over your lifetime. And... I am very fortunate that they're going to give that to me this year. I'm so uh, excited. I have chills. I mean, it was, 
I mean, they sent me the letter. I've got, I've got the you know, the people here that have, uh, who have gotten it, uh, like um, Sir Kenneth Adams. Ken Adams did all the Bond movies, and uh, you know, there's this part, you know, Richard Silbert and Dean Tavalaris who did the Godfather movies, and it just goes on. These these great designers, Tony Walton, uh, and and now I'm sort of shocked that I'm going to be put in that category. And it's interesting because, you know, basically I've been retired for 20 years. So you don't think about uh, the past. It just happened. And, and I do these shows and I, and I sell the book and I sell my drawings from Jaws and stuff, but uh, I was shocked. And, and so it, it, it's, it's sort of a real compliment, but it, it, um, it, it made is. me think about, you know, the beginning, how it all started. And, and I can give you that story if you're interested. Yes, and congratulations. I'm so excited for you. I want to hear how this started for you. Well, you know, when I was in high school, I remember this. Um, I, we, I lived, grew up in a little town, Hayward, California, which is uh, sort of in the Bay Area, uh, east of Oakland. It was, it was a small town. They had one theater. And I remember I was probably 13, 14 years old and went down to, <clears throat> with a, a neighbor girl, Shirley, and we walked down to the theater probably early evening. And we saw American in Paris. And uh, I was just elated by the movie and uh, came back and we were dancing in the street. And then as I researched, I found out well, they, they never made the movie in Paris. The whole movie was made on the back lot at MGM and in the sound stages. And I discovered that Cedric Gibbons and Preston Ames were the art directors. And I thought, oh my gosh, what are they, how do they do that? You know, who are they? What are they, you know, how do I get there? That's what I want to do. And, and so that's sort of the start of the, the whole process of, of learning. How do I get into the movie business? How do I become... Uh, an art director or a set designer or whatever the route was that you had to take. And uh, so eventually I, I, I did a, a year at San Jose State and majored in architecture and minored in drama because I was yes. always interested in drama. And I, I used to direct a, a, a show at uh, in high school, you know, senior extravaganza and stuff. So anyway, and then I kept thinking as I drove to the school, there was a sign that said Los Angeles. And I said, I got to make that turn someday and go down to Los Angeles and get in the movie business. And uh, eventually, uh, I was still young. I graduated high school. I was 17. I made the turn. I went down and I found a, an art school called Chenard's Art Institute, which they they had classes in motion picture design. So that's what happened. I, um, I studied architecture and uh, illustration and uh uh, and that was the beginning. So, uh, uh-huh. but, but I didn't, my, I got a summer job at Walt Disney's. Uh, I thought it would be a summer job because I knew somebody that worked there and it was a, a friend of mine's wife's father. Well, he, he did the hiring and he said, well, bring your portfolio. And I said, Oh, I don't, I don't think I'm ready. I was only just turned 19, I think. And uh, he said, oh, we'll bring it. So anyway, he, 
uh, I go there with the portfolio, and he said, well, you're, you're too late for the training program. They draw Mickey Mouse. And so well, I could okay. put you in special, special effects, you know. And um, it, it was just unbelievable. I, this, I got in this room, and there's a, a board with a light on it. And the, and I, the lady said, uh, you just flip the pages and draw in between. And I, I said, okay, I could do that. Anyway, uh, Rebecca, long story short, she had to leave. She was working for Dwight Carlisle, who was assisting Josh Meadow, who was the king animator. He did Night in Ball Mountain, and he did Fire in Bambi. And he was working on a picture for MGM called Forbidden Planet, and they were drawing this id. And through circumstances, it generally takes three or four years to become an assistant animator. Okay. He, Dwight had to go to the hospital. I ended up assisting this guy after two months and no drawing kidding. the for Forbidden Planet. Mm -hmm. and, and and so I'm at Disney and I'm, I'm doing Sleeping Beauty and I just have to tell you this one and then we'll move on. And I'm I'm designing, the, one of the fairies are holding, uh, holding a cookie and this guy reaches over me and corrects the, the drawing. He said, no, no, the cookie should look. And it's Walt Disney. And he used to come and walk around and collect and correct drawings. So okay. he used to, you, know, you call him, you call him Walt. You didn't call him Mr. Disney. So I said, well, thank you, Walt. Anyway, that, that was my beginning in the, in the movie industry. And it was, it was a long time ago. So. This is incredible. Now you also went to USC to study as well. Didn't you? While, while I was at, um, at, at, at uh, uh, Disney, uh -huh. I started taking classes at SC in uh, motion picture effects and it, uh, in various, because uh, I was still g going to school at night and when I could squ squeeze it on the weekends to Chenard's and then I started taking classes in the motion picture uh, department at USC. Uh, but I really wanted to, to get into live action. So after a couple of years of, of Disney, um, a friend of mine that I had gone to college with, uh, he had directed a, a play in college that I was in. He was a senior and I was a freshman. He was in the service. He came back and uh, we were rooming together and he started directing at this little theater, uh, the Hollywood Playhouse. And uh, so I started designing the sets uh, for the Playhouse and I built up a portfolio of uh, illustrations and drafting. And then I went around and uh, I got my first job as a um, as a set designer, and you start off as a, a junior, and you're the last to be hired, first to be fired, because there's all these, all uh -huh. these, there was like five or six major studios: MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers, etc. And you, you know, you know you'd, there would be a big picture, like I was at MGM when they're doing Mutiny on the Bounty, and I went there and I was drawing details of boats and stuff. Then that would finish, and you'd go to Fox and do something. So you get knocked around. I was at Warner Brothers and was drawing on My Fair Lady and stuff. So you, you get an experience, and then eventually you become a senior uh, set designer. Okay. And I landed at, Uni at Universal, and I worked on this bad, bad world for months and months. And so that becomes your home, and uh, you become sort of a uh, staff. It's not that way anymore. All that broke up uh, in the 70s. Oh, but that's okay. how it used to be, you know. And then I was fortunate to become assistant art director 
And I'll never forget this because I was working with this art director, Frank Arrigo, who really helped me tremendously how to think about designing. And we were working on a picture called Torn Curtain with Alfred Hitchcock. So I remember Hitchcock, the production designer and art director were away someplace and his uh, secretary, Peggy, called me and said, Mr. Hitchcock wants to see you. And uh, I said, really, me? You know, because, you know, you call him Hitch, Mr. Hitchcock, not Hitch. You know, he's pretty well established. You know, he's big yes. director. They didn't get any bigger at that time. So he calls me in his office and he says, Joe, he says, uh, I want you to build these stairs. Mr. Newman runs down the stairs and Mr. Whitlock would do the mat shot. Then he comes over to the registration desk and he leaves. And I said, okay, so how about the other side of the set, do I build it? No, no, you just build what I tell you. Because you, he never wanted to waste money. He just, just build what I'm going to need. Unlike okay. a lot of directors that want everything. Well, no, because Hitch used to be an art director, so he would plan his shots so that we would just build what we would see, you know. Which Interesting. Was, okay. That was quite different. There's only a few directors that I've worked with that were that way. Most of them weren't build me everything and then I'll decide what I'm going to shoot, you know? Okay. Okay. So the pre-planning uh, was to do storyboards, to do layouts, and then he could, he, he knew what he wanted. Uh, another director I worked with uh, was similar to that was John Carpenter. I did escape from New York with John and, and he was very cost conscious because he did very, very low budget pictures. But in any case, uh, uh, as it moves on, as it, working with Hitchcock and working, uh, I was an assistant. Then I became a, a full art director. And uh, what happened at that time, Universal was uh, bought by Review, which was uh, a television studio. And uh, 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 Lou Wasserman was the president and he came into Universal and they started taking over Universal. So there was a lot of television now at Universal and there were still the feature people, but there was a transition that you could make this jump to art director on television easier than on features uh, because there's more television. And I was very fortunate to uh, get a series called Night Gallery with uh -huh. uh, Rod Serling. Yes. And, and on Night Gallery, I met this young director by the name of Steven Spielberg. I guess you guys have heard about him. Oh, yes. And, yeah. And so Steven and I uh, worked together on a, a few television shows. Uh, and, um, and then I did his first movie called uh, Sugarland Express. And that was his first theatrical film. Mm -hmm. And then we did Jaws together and then Close Encounters together. So let me ask you, when it goes into the set design and making all of this, actually putting it into fruition, it takes a long time to go from the idea to drawing the illustration and then actually creating whatever the object or scene it is. Uh, I'll give you a good example, uh, because this is sort of unusual uh, for production designer or art director. But um, 
Yes, it, it, it generally takes a while. It depends on the size of the picture. The okay. Money. It depends. On television, I used to do like 20 sets a week on Night Gallery. And so you grab whatever is standing, whatever you could steal. Okay. Not steal, but you borrow from another show, whatever you build. And, and that was frantic. That was just, I really learned a lot how to, to, to show a director, well, we have this corner. If you could do the scene in that corner because this other side isn't finished and blah, blah, blah. So, so you really learn quickly how to read a script and then materialize what it should look like. And if it's television, the director doesn't have that much input because he doesn't have time. If it's a, a night gallery where he's doing just a 20 minute show or half minute show, half hour show. So you, you sort of lay it out to him, does this work for you? And so that gave me a, a lot of experience. Uh, and then um, working on, on Circleman Express with Stephen, we became pretty close, and uh, that one was pretty much a road picture. We drive around and find some in interesting locations and stuff. So that one we didn't build so much. Jaws is, is okay. quite different. I, I get, Jaws is different in this respect. Uh, Stephen wasn't on the movie at the beginning. Okay. Uh, this producer Zanuck and Brown, who produced Sugarland Express. Uh, what happened was David Brown, uh, whose wife was Helen Gurley Brown, and she was the editor of, of Cosmopolitan Magazine. She had found this book called Jaws. And she said to David, this might make a good movie. And so I was a staff art director. I was working on some television movies at the time. This was after Sugarland. And uh, he called me, and they didn't have a charge number or anything. So he said... I've got this book, and uh, I could send you the galley sheets if you could um, draw wherever there's a shark situation in the book and do some illustrations so we could use those illustrations to sell the studio on the idea of making this shark movie. Right. So that was sort of unusual because there's no script. There was just the book. And uh, Stephen wasn't assigned to it yet because at that time you got assigned, you know, by the heads of the department. And so I started in between doing my other work on the television show because they weren't paying me. They were just, you know, I was staff so I could fit it in when I wasn't doing my sure. show. So I did about 30 or so illustrations. You'll see some of them on, on my website. They're, they're charcoal drawings, you know. And uh, there were about 16 inches, you know, 12 by 16 inches, charcoal drawings of the shark getting the cage, the shark hitting the boat, uh, you know, et cetera, uh, based on the book's idea, uh, not, not the script. And I would go over to Stephen and uh, I said, oh, you know, you've got to do the shark picture. And uh, he'd say, yeah, you know, I was going to do a he was, he was wanted to do a pirate movie. Anyway, the Zanica Brown had had this other director in mind, and they didn't like him. So, I think they finally decided Stephen was the guy. And so I had been talking to Stephen because we were friends, and he had a, a cabana uh, on the lot. And and then we said, you know, if we ever do this, we want to build a, like a big shark, you know, twenty five feet, and do it in the real ocean, not in a backlot lake and with a phony backdrop, you know. Uh -huh. And so that, that's never been done before. And uh, so in any case, um, 
we have a meeting with my illustrations and all the department heads, the, you know, head of editing, the head of camera, the head of art department, and the head of special effects. And uh, so I take the drawings and I go, and Steven's there, and Richard Zanuck and David Brown are there, big producers. You know, they did The Sting and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yes. And they were really hot producers. So they were waiting to see what the studios reacted to make this little shark movie, which nobody was too excited about. Except Marshall Green, who was the head of production, sort of liked it because he lived on a boat. See, he liked the whole water idea. Okay. And uh, so I, I did my presentation on the, the shark and how we needed a full-size shark, I figure 25 feet. And there's a long story about that, but I'll, I'll just jump to this. And um, so he, he looked at the special effects people and said, uh, can you make this? And they said, well, no, it's never been done. No one's ever built a, a shark and shot it in the real ocean, you know, if, he said, it would take us probably a year, a year and a half to develop it. Besides, we have bigger movies. We've got the Hindenburg we're doing. And, and Marshall got real mad and said, Jaws could be a bigger picture than the Hindenburg. And everybody sort of laughed because Hindenburg was going to be George C. Scott's big movie. And right. Jaws was just this little shark movie. So um, the meeting broke up. I was collecting my drawings and I started walking out. Marshall called me back and he said, um, can you get the shark mate? And being a young, ambitious and whatever, I, I said, yeah, I, I certainly could try. Yeah, I, I think I could do that. So, okay. He said, well, take it off the lot. That, this was unusual because everything was done on the lot. The same, right. You know. Everything stayed right there. Yeah. You know, so they kept it all in universal, you know. He said, take it off the lot, find an independent thing to do it. So I was then entrusted with the idea of building a shark. And uh, I, I set about looking, and I, w I went to the Steinhardt and studied uh, with Leonard Capanni, who was a shark expert, what's the shark look like. I made a four, uh, it's in the book, I made a four foot clay model of a, a white shark. And he helped me detail the things. And he said, a perfect shark is about 12 feet. After that, they get really fat and girthy. He said, so a, a really good looking shark would be 12 feet. And then we wanted to make it twice that size. So we doubled it 20, he made it like 25 feet. Okay. It was sleek, you know, and that's how it got that shape. So anyway, uh, here's the rub. Uh, after much research and Disney said they would make it, but they wouldn't take it out in the ocean. And somebody else said, Oh yeah, that would take about a year, a year and a half to make. And, uh, you know, so I found someone mentioned this guy, Bob Maddie, who had worked at Disney and had done the, uh, this giant squid in 20,000 leagues under the sea, a movie made in the late fifties. So I met Bob and he was all enthusiastic. Oh, yeah, I could do it. For, you know, he's about in his mid-60s. Very enthusiastic. He, he said, give me a couple of days. So he came back with a little wire sculpture that you could, it, it would squeeze, you pull a lever and the mouth would open and close. So, okay, we got the, the rights to, to hire him. And then uh, I hired six more guys. We called it the Magnificent Seven. Roy Abergas was going to do the scan. We needed special 
plastic, urethanes and stuff to make this thing. Yes. So anyway, Rebecca, the, the whole thing that, that upsets me about Jaws is this. I hear the critics and, and they said, oh, well, the shark didn't work. The shark didn't work. They had to shoot. Well, let me tell you, that, that was probably November of 1973. The book came out in February of 74. And the studio said, we've got to start shooting this in three, two months. So where's my year, year and a half to build the shark? They yes. had four months, four months, five months before we started shooting. And the guys were just working like crazy to, to you know, and so uh, I was working with Stephen and I, I went off and found the location. I found Martha, I met with Peter Benchley and found Martha's Vineyard and all that. And uh, so the, the, the thing is, I would say we got everything moved to the East Coast and uh, Bob would be testing the shark. We had three sharks, a right to left, left to right, because the opposite side had to be open. And then we had one on a platform. That, that makes see. sense. Pardon? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So so we we had all this. And, and so then I would go to Bob and he'd say, well, we're going to test the um, left to right shark. And I'd go to Stephen and we would sit and... Uh, do the storyboards, he would rough up uh, ideas and then I'd go back and develop them. And you, you see that in the book too. And I said, if it works, we shoot it. If not, it's a test. And that's basically how we made the movie. I mean, Bob had to catch up. We shot everything we could without the shark. We substitute and we designed this, the, these yellow barrels that I, I had redesigned the boat and the barrels represented the shark. So you see the barrels coming and you say, well, there's a shark is there, you know, so it made it more suspenseful, you know, and um, so, so that's basically the story. That's why it was so difficult is because the guys were trying to catch up to this, this time to make this shark when they you know, had, you know, a third of the time that they were supposed to have. But this um, is really incredible because it turned out to be an iconic film and it is very well known to this day. That's what's a shock to me is um, we, we finished the, the principal's photography. There was one, one shot Stephen said, uh, I, he wants to go back and cut, start cutting the movie. He said, could you direct that sequence? And it was a little boy getting eaten on the little raft. So it was my first directing kid, you know, and uh, that was sort of fun. Then uh, we came back, we shot stuff in a, what is a, the tank, we used to call it the Esther Williams tank at MGM, with the underwater stuff where the shark attacks uh, the guy in the cage. And we even shot some stuff in my driveway because we had a little, some pickup shots that Stephen wanted to do where they break in the boat and I made a little bit of the hull and we used a hammer and a hose. And then the the really scary shot was uh, the head when it. it comes out of that hole. And so I built that in my uh, garage and we, we used the editor's swimming pool and we, we actually stole the head out of uh, the makeup department and got an underwater camera and we shot that in our pool. And because uh, Stephen said, I, I had, they had one screening in Texas he says, I had four screams. I think I could get five if we could do this. So we did it. The studio didn't even know we were doing it. We just did it on our own. Put that scene in. 
And then we showed it in Lakewood, California, and everybody screamed, you know, when they saw that head. And my fear was that people were going to laugh at the shark because when we were doing the shark, it would make all sorts of weird sounds with their rams and stuff, you know. You know, and so then after the shots, you know, the crew would all laugh at the shark. And I thought, oh, they're going to laugh, you know. And when the movie came out and they were sitting there and they, they were screaming and not laughing. So what happened was then the studio realized, oh, my God, maybe we have a big hit here. They didn't realize it. They almost canceled the movie four times because it was so much trouble. And no uh, they went back. Yeah, and, and then they went back and they said, we've got to make this a big release. So they released it in 450 theaters. Today they do 4,000. But that was the first big summer release of 450 theaters. And we were shocked. We were shocked that there were just lines of people to go see the movie, you know. Well, I've got to so tell that, you. That's it, you know. It's, we, you know, it just... I think on, it was know. so realistic that you had people scared to death to go in the ocean for a long time. And, you know, Rebecca, this is what's so weird is after that, I, I, I did a Jaws 2 uh, as a, um, a social producer, production designer, and they fired the first director and I brought in the second director and I directed 100 Days of Second Unit and then I went on and I directed Jaws 3D which was really difficult because it was 3D and they had old cameras and we had to make new cameras. But in any case, uh, time went by and it wasn't until probably the beginning of this century I was at a reunion for Jaws and people would say, you know, you you should sell your storyboard, you should get online, do all this stuff now. And so I started doing that and I started doing these shows and I was shocked at these shows that these kids were like 10, 12 years old. And, oh, could you sign this and sign the poster? And I said, God, you weren't even born. Your parents weren't born when we did this movie. And they were. So I realized it went from generations. Yes. Of people that still liked the movie. And that yes. was a big shock to me, you know. Yes. I grew up so. in Southern California um, not too long um I mean, I was born, but my younger days in hitting Santa Monica Beach, um, oh, yeah. around eight to ten, you know, nineteen seventy-eight ish, seventy-nine, eighty. I mean, I remember this, and um, it was a big deal. And this has been something that has—it does go. It carries from generation to generation. What you did is absolutely uh, um, just. It, it is legendary, it is iconic, it has been around, and it will continue. I mean, it is it is a film that is just part of the major motion picture industry. And there are some that you remember, but when someone just says one word, Jaws, they know. They know, and, and there's a visual that comes with it, and you're the man that created it, that and did it. And this is absolutely amazing. You have a lot... Um, that you have behind you and a lot in front of you as well. I'm really excited and I want to congratulate you on your Lifetime Achievement Achievement Award that you are getting. This is absolutely um, something that is well-deserved. 
along with the other, other awards that you've already been given. But gosh, Joe, I am really excited about all the things that you've done. And I know that there's more that you're getting ready to present. I want to share with the audience too, that they can catch a lot of the information that they've shared, that you've shared with them about the production aspect in Joelle's designing jaws and also going to your website, um, at uh, joelvesmovieart.com. And I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Well, good. I I'm, I'm, uh, hope I didn't uh, over-talk uh, the Jaws thing, but... Oh, not at all. I'm really excited. In fact, I think that there is so much more that I want to learn about the things that you've done, things with Close Encounters, uh, just the, even more. A lot of the other sets that you've done, things that you've accomplished, I think that the audience would love to hear that as well because really a lot of times we talk with celebrities about things behind the scenes, but really ultimately, Joe, you're the one that created the behind the scenes. And that to me is very fascinating. So I would like to invite you to come back um, soon. All right. Well, yes. Uh, thank you. You know, the, uh, obviously, my next picture with Stephen was Close Encounters, and that's another story. But <laughs> there's also a lot of pictures that you work on just as hard that nobody remembers. But that's the movie business, you know. You can know. have a big success, and then all you, you're thinking about is getting the next job and hopefully the next picture will be a success too. And sometimes you work really hard and they open and they close, you know, and that's sort of uh, the movie world. That's true. And it's like that in a lot of professions. And sometimes they say you're only as good as your last, whatever. Yeah. But you, Joe, have made a name for yourself and you're not just as good as your last, whatever. You have so many wonderful things. You've got 18 credits to your name, uh, an Oscar. You now have your Lifetime Achievement Award. You are an incredible man. I know well, you I didn't get an Oscar. I got two nominations. Uh, yes. I, I did get a, a British Academy Award, though. So. And I'm, I'm really excited. I'm, and thank you so much for being with us today. All right. Thank you for inviting me. And I want to thank all of you for tuning into Rebecca Sounds Reveille. I ask that you share this with your friends, your family, your coworkers, those that you're close to and those that you're not. And you can catch us again next week. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to Rebecca Sounds Reveille. I am really excited because I have somebody who's got such a diverse background and has joined the two together to create something that is really going to make your world rock. Today with me, Sarah Katz, whose work in cybersecurity has been joined with her pinship. Yes, you will want to know a little bit more about her upcoming book called Apex Five. It is something that I could tell you a whole lot about, but there's no one who could share the passion other than the author herself. And I would like to bring her right now to the show so that she can share with you what she has to really inspire 
and bring some creativity to your mind. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I am really excited to have you because there's a couple of things that you and I have in common. And one is the cybersecurity because that's investigative. And the other thing is both of us are authors. But the thing is you've taken the two and joined them together and merged them to create something absolutely phenomenal. And I'm wondering how you managed to do that. Well, that's a good question. So I've been involved in politics and security for almost the past 10 years through education and work. And I've been writing fiction since I was about eight years old. So I combined the two as passions. This is pretty neat. So tell me a little bit about how you, how you work in the cybersecurity world. This is really an intense field and it is something that is very much in demand and it is much needed and there's not enough people who are involved in that area right now. That is correct. Um, I pivoted into the cybersecurity arena following um, an undergraduate degree in international relations and a graduate degree in counterterrorism. So I've always been pretty security oriented, but I, I moved specifically into cybersecurity following work at Facebook wherein I was a content moderator. So we saw a lot of crazy content that you would never expect it to see shared on Facebook. So that really increased my interest in and passion for the technological aspect of security, especially mm -hmm. since I live in the Silicon Valley and I've grown up here. So you kind of can't really escape the role of technology, if you will. That's true. Not in the Silicon Valley, you can't. Everything is really technological there. And what's really fascinating is that I think you've hit upon a couple of good points that we overlook because we look on the entertainment value and the personal connections on social media, and we don't realize how much risk is involved. And on your side, as um, someone that was reviewing things to ensure the safety of those that are enjoying the privileges of social media. You're over here seeing some things that I'm sure were pretty shocking when you first got involved. Yes, absolutely. I saw some quite disturbing material. Mm -hmm. No, I think that this is fantastic because in the day and age that we live in a free society in our world here in the United States, where we really have a lot of rights where we can speak freely, get on the internet, kind of do our thing. There's a lot of things from, like you're talking about, uh, counter-terrorism, terrorism, to trafficking anywhere from trafficking drugs, to child trafficking, to sex trafficking, to the whole gamut of things. And then some, and we tend to not realize how many risks that are involved when it comes to just the internet. So I think that is, is fantastic what you're doing. I like that you're an expert in this field and that you do this every day to protect us. And I want to thank you so much for doing that. Well, thank you. And I want to thank you for taking the opportunity to merge this into something so creative and allow your juices to flow into your new book, Apex 5, which is something that I want you to share with the audience because this is so incredibly ingenious with what you've done. 
Thank you. So um, Apex Five, in a nutshell, touches on a prospective future Earth in which humanity has separated into five distinct nations. Each nation has evolved around each of five colossal megastructures. Um, the origin of these structures is unknown. And it's really a story of evolution, both human and technological, and exploring how humans should never play God, because really it never ends well. And isn't that so true? When humans try to take something into their own hands that is so natural and change it, it just doesn't ever come out the way it should. Exactly. So this is, this is pretty neat. How long did this take from idea to actual the whole storyline coming to fruition? Because for many writers, some of these things can take many years. Sure. So I've technically been brainstorming the plot of Apex Five and some of the characters for about 15 years. So it was a oh long my time goodness. In the it was a long time in the making. That being said, the actual first draft took only about four months to write, but there were probably mm -hmm. about in a year and a half of edits before it got to where it is now. You so, know, it's so yeah. funny because people don't realize how long editing takes because you've got to go back and reread it and you've got to go it's back and Yes, writing the book sometimes. Yeah. And then even when you go back and you're editing, because you're looking for not only spell check and grammar, but then you'll reread it and you want to make sure that that sentence really um, conveys what you want it to convey the right way at the right time with the right uh, emotion and all of that. And you're really delivering it in Apex Five. And so. You've got more, though, because with 15 years of this idea just developing, it can't just stop right in one book. Oh, no. It's going to extend to at least three books in total. See, this is fantastic. A trilogy, a minimum of a trilogy. This is awesome. And so we, we may be looking at the next mega movie here and what you have going but um, let me ask you, too, how difficult is it to keep track of different worlds and characters that are going on with all of that? So that's a really good question. In the universe of Apex Five, it is technically Earth, but it's quite post-apocalyptic. So okay. humankind has more or less completely restarted. And... In that sense, it is a whole new unique world, and there are a lot of details that world builders have to keep track of, like a time system, different languages. Okay. Weather patterns, if they're different, and if certain things are different about either the foreign planet you're dealing with or in the case of Apex Five of Future Earth, for instance, the planet no longer has one moon. It has like a bunch of, has kind of like a uh, ring of orbiting um, asteroids that are kind of broken apart and stuck in our orbit. So it looks a lot different from the, yeah, the night sky. Yeah, yeah, the night sky looks a lot different. And I mean, of course, it's not, obviously, 
visually it would look pretty neat, but my shtick is there always has to be like a scientific explanation for things. Like it's not just up okay. there it looks pretty. It's up there because the apocalypse that happened kind of changed our orbit. Oh, so, and it placed it. It placed these pieces there. Yes. And okay, I, I'm following this, and I'm also thinking about how this could play out down the road. And don't don't, don't give any details because we definitely want the audience to get a copy of your book and be able to read for themselves. And it's kind of like a cliffhanger here because I'm, I'm thinking about different things about how the, these could come to the, or anyway, I mean, I, I'm, this is what's really cool about this, Sarah, is that it's just talking about it, allowing my mind to imagine things. And oftentimes we get so caught up in our day to day adult world that we forget to imagine. Absolutely. And we don't have fun anymore. Yeah. yeah. So this is awesome. This is really neat. So now tell me too, you have already been on exhibition with your book in a couple of different places. Can you share with the audience a little bit about that as well? So Comic-Con San Diego 2018, I was only able to advertise. Unfortunately, I did not attend in person. Worldcon um, 76, so last August, I exhibited in person, I had a table, and I had a lot of fun with my table partner exhibiting her book, and it was a really great process. Um, the author of the Game of Thrones series, George R. R. Martin was there, and there were a lot of other neat folks there too. So it was a great experience, amazing networking experience. Also really lucrative for promoting your book in a way that doesn't involve potentially spamming online users with links. Working in cybersecurity, yes. I definitely understand the risk of that. You're going to get yourself blocked by a lot of people very quickly. So physical conventions are a stellar promotional method if you're trying to avoid getting blocked and just coming off as noise, really. So, And I will be exhibiting again at Silicon Valley Comic Con this coming August. So I'm really excited about that. This is really exciting. You have a lot of really good upcoming things in line specifically from your book and all conjoined with your writing and your ideas from your childhood into now that have been in development also combined with your cybersecurity. This is, this is pretty phenomenal. A lot of people don't take their current work and bridge what's going on. And this is something that you're doing. You're doing it very, very well. So I'm excited to see not only your current work, but um, what's coming in your at least trilogy. Tell me more about some of the other work that you've done, because you've been writing for a long time. Sure. So my first manuscript that was novel length um, was a historical fiction, magical realism project that I wrote my senior year of high school and it I love it it takes place during the post world war one greco-turkish conflict and it follows two sisters in greece and the younger sister starts to receive visits from a mysterious person who identifies as the greek god hermes and he, okay 
bestowing messages on her and she's just kind of trying to make sense of that. So it was definitely an experiment in magical realism. Um, other than that, during college I mean, and graduate school, I mainly focused on op-ed pieces and academic papers specifically uh, to do with international relations and counterterrorism. Mm -hmm. I've also written some, uh, written and performed some stand-up comedy as well. So I really just like writing. Um, also short fiction is a great way to keep the juices flowing. When, this is true. Yeah, when like, you know, you don't necessarily have the time to dedicate to pursuing your longer term projects. It's a great way to keep the juices flowing. That is true. And it's so funny because a lot of times people will say, I've got writer's block and I can't think of anything, but you want to keep moving, get, keep your brain active. And that way, like you said, when the juices are flowing, I mean, you just stay creative. And exactly. it's, and, and even if you maneuver from one, one thing for a little while, when your creativity is constant, you'll you'll get something and it'll just come right back to it and it'll be pretty quick. And so, and I, you know, I had something that happened. I, I, I'm a writer as well and I, I have a passion for it. I always have. I love the English language. I love the way that we can be able to do <laughs> so many things with our language. Yes. And... It, what's really neat about it is, I mean, you can take the same sentence and from intonation, inflection, um, to italics, to, you mean, just the way you place word placement. There's so many things that you can do to make words jump, pop, sizzle, you know, just all of those things, right? I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And so when you are thinking about those things and in terms of putting them into practice with other things the creativity can really flow in a lot of areas of your life and i hadn't had something happen to me for a long time but something did the other day and that was i woke up the other day at two o'clock in the morning with an idea and i oh, said get yeah Get your pencil, get your pen, and start writing. None of the typing on the keyboard thing. Don't do this. You write it. Write it down with, you know, on the paper, old school method. And um, because so sometimes that sticks and that really helps actually make other things flow too. I don't know what the brain out through the hand connection is, but it works. So it's pretty, and it's pretty neat, and it's amazing that you mention that today because often we fail to think about continuing to do that. And I'm a creative person much like you are. You and I share some of these things, and often we don't think about the two connecting at all. Right. And, um, it's, and it's pretty neat. I want to hear, too, a little bit about your stand-up comedy. Oh, uh, so that really just came about as the result of a bunch of instances, often frustrating instances in real life that I felt others could relate to. So I love it. Yeah. Like it started around like traffic inconveniences and then kind of spreads to some ethnic humor because I come from a Jewish family and I work with a lot of Indian coworkers. So I really feel like there's a lot of, I don't know, like, you know, sometimes there is just misunderstandings that happen. Sure. Between sure. different cultures, and that can be funny. It can be funny, and oftentimes we, um, in the world we live in, sometimes we've gotten too uptight about things because we're just looking at the surface thing instead of realizing some of these are just, 
because we don't understand. And like you said, so I think that that's pretty refreshing. And it's really nice that you are able to take, um, take a step back and really lighten the load on these things. And I think part of that has to do with your creativity. But frustration leads us to uh, creativity, like the invention of the wheel. So I am <laughs> um, really excited that you have been on the show today. I'm really excited about your book, your upcoming books, and a lot of the other things that you have going. Can you share with the audience how they can get a copy of your current book and also where they can connect with you so that they can follow what you're doing and keep watch with where this is going because I think that this is going to be a biggie. Absolutely. Thank you. So the book can be purchased on Amazon in Kindle or paperback format. And the title again is Apex Five. And it can also be purchased via my website at www.authorsarahcats.com. Um, and you can either follow me on Facebook. Well, actually not either. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Facebook is just author Sarah Katz and Twitter is at author Sarah Katz. So it's all some flavor of author Sarah Katz. I love it. I absolutely love it. And I want to thank you so much for being with us today and sharing what you've got going on. This is really exciting and I'm really glad to share how much you can bridge not only the work that you do, but that with the passion that you have to create something that helps you move forward in the direction that you want to go. So thank you for being with me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm. And I want to thank all of you for tuning in to another episode of Rebecca Sounds Reveille. I am really excited about Sarah Katz. She's got a lot going on that you need to kind of check out. So author Sarah Katz, check her out on Facebook, Twitter, see what she's got going on. There's some things to follow here and, uh, and possibly a trilogy that might be hopefully getting picked up at some point and hitting the big screen. 